And so sometimes I just need to be like my 19 year old self that almost gets kicked out of the UGA Alabama game in 2007 because <laughs> I say something about John Park and Wilson that I will not repeat today. And I want you to imagine the 12 minutes that I just had and imagine what I could say to another human that I would not repeat right now. You wouldn't believe the things he wouldn't say out loud. This is Chapel Bell Curve. I'm Nathan. And I'm Justin. And today we're going to do... I'd like to I'd like to pitch this episode as a never-before-done, brand-new format to the podcast feed. Okay. Exclusive. It's like a podcast uh, shark tank. VIP lifestyle podcast. Yeah. And so what it is is that we're going to do two podcasts in one podcast. Is it a podcast like a within podcast a podcast? sandwich. Yeah, and we're going to pitch that as being like, oh, this is the exclusive Florida Week episode. But really, it's just that we – or Tennessee Week episode. But really, it's just that we didn't have time to record the Florida review. So we're just going to do that, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. we're going to do the Tennessee preview. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. Where does it's, one start it's all and where does the other end? Place. Yeah, a one-stop shop, baby. <laughs> so <laughs> – I understand. Jesus. I get it. Yeah, okay. it's one of those things where it's like, that... no, I lost my train of thought. I don't know. I'm ready for it. Am I ready for it? Are yeah, you ready I mean, for it? So nor- normally at this point in the episode, I'll say something like, if you've never listened, if this is your first episode with us, here's what we're going to do. But this is everybody's first episode. This is the first time we've done this because we got busy. Mm-hmm. Right. So. How I think this is going to go is we're going to just sort of do an abbreviated form of the Florida preview, and we're really going to focus on stuff that we think will sort of lend itself to further analysis of the Tennessee game in addition to doing the the normal qualitative review that we do about our own personal experiences, which will mostly be handled by me, but because I was at the game. Yeah. So beautiful time we'll start with our qualitative stuff for the florida game then we'll get into some quantitative stuff and we'll use that to sort of branch us out into our tennessee qualitative and it'll be like see what we've basically done is we've taken the two episodes and we've taken the cookie off of one side of both of them and now we're smooshing them together so that we get double the cream in this Mm. episode we're making like a A a queen pie quadruple decker oreo a queen pie yeah so let's talk about the florida game there are there are some significant newsy stuff, newsy things. Um, back to our own, our old favorite Disney-sponsored musical. <laughs> uh, first of all, Nolan Smith was injured in this game. This is probably Ugh. the biggest piece of news coming out of the Florida game, which is that Nolan Smith has a pectoral injury that is going to keep him out, we think, for the rest of the year. So Ooh. that sucks. Uh, I didn't realize it was the rest of the year. That really sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the rest of the year, but pec injuries are usually pretty rough. Yeah, and he's you know, slow to about heal. To go to the draft, and so it's 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 pretty it's pretty rough. Uh, he is speaking of the Tennessee game, a, a person that will be sorely missed against this offense in in Tennessee. Another ma- minor injury news: Marius Mims mm-hmm. has an MCL sprain that apparently isn't as serious as Jalen Carter's. He was apparently seen walking after the game in the locker room without any issues. So. He has been sort of like the second left tackle, sort of the sixth rotational player on this offensive line all season. I think in large part due to the fact that he is probably the best, most pedigreed, most raw, talented 
offensive line prospect on this roster. Mm -hmm. So it is certainly a blow to lose him. I'm not sure if it will have the impact that Nolan does. Nolan Smith's absence will because Nolan Smith is an every down starter in a very literal sense of the term. So some non-Georgia news coming into the Tennessee week. Uh, Britton Cox got kicked off of Florida's team, which is, I mean, I'm going to use a bad word here, and I'm sorry, Uh Uh, that's just fucking funny (laughs) that he started his career at Georgia, and he ended his career playing Georgia, trying to get in a fist fight with Kenny McIntosh. And you know what? I harbor no ill will to Britton Cox. I don't know why it hasn't worked out for him. He's certainly a talented player. I hope nothing but the best for him. I'm not even saying that sarcastically. This isn't a, like, bless your heart thing. I genuinely do wish nothing but the best on him. Uh, but he's gone, and we don't know why. Uh, I don't think it was because he punched Kenny McIntosh kind of ineffectually. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, Brian Harson got fired. Hell yeah, like, So, did. first of all, whoops, shocker. Yeah, we all thought this was going to happen six weeks ago. It actually was kind of shocking. Apparently, the timing of it was such that they hired this guy. They had this really internally contentious uh, athletic director search where there were a bunch of guys looked at f- by a search form a search firm, and then this new guy, the new Auburn Athletic Director, was brought in sort of by some of the power players, uh, the, the the Curious George made in the yellow hat kind of power <laughs> players at Auburn. And and I'm not saying it was Jimmy Rain, but it was Jimmy Rain. And they hired him, and one of his sort of like stipulations was, I'm not going to be the guy who fires Brian Harson. Like, I don't want to come in and be like, hey, you know, I'm John or whatever. Hi, Brian, you're fired. Right? Yeah. So, but the timing of it was weird because they fired him on a Monday morning, and that was because it took so long to hire the athletic director because there was all sorts of palace intrigue because it's Auburn. Uh, you know, where Auburn goes from here is very intriguing. We're not a news show that is sourced in the way that we can talk about this intelligently. I think that, you know, the guy at Auburn is now the guy who hired Mike Leach. So I think that makes Lane Kiffin more in play, <laughs> which I think is funny. That would be very funny. Uh, I think. Deion Sanders would also be interesting. I think both of those guys are good coaches. Uh, Lane Kiffin is a guy who is going to give you a really quick return because he's an excellent football coach. I don't know if Lane Kiffin, let me rephrase. Based on every bit of available evidence we have about who Lane Kiffin is as a person, he's probably not ready for the Soviet era Politburo style of uh, (laughs) Auburn athletic politics where like you're constantly getting like taken out the door and shot and then burned. Like you're, I mean, I don't know, just like like in the every moment in the Auburn Athletic Department is like the 72 hours after the death of Lennon. Like, it's just it's just like dudes with too many made up medals killing each other all the time. I don't think Lane Kiffin's ready for that, but it would be funny. So it would be good. The last thing I have, and, and this kind of can lead us into our talk about the game itself. I found this quote from the post-game interview. This is actually from a Seth Emerson article, which mm-hmm. that Seth Emerson is the reason that I subscribe to The Athletic. That's an unpaid plug for him. <laughs> uh, that is, was just the people talking about Brock Bauer's sort of ridiculous circus sideline catch for a touchdown. I think it was a 73-yard catch. And this, I think, really epitomizes who Brock Bauer is as a human, which is to say not a human, uh, but more like an alien who, like, Im- took over the body of a future frat boy in California and decided to play football as like a cultural experience or something. Anyway, so this is Bennett on, this is Bennett on that play, Stetson Stetson Bennett. And Mm -hmm. he's talking about how he threw it deep basically because he thought that Florida was off sides, which they didn't call, but he says, but they didn't call it, but I thought he did jump off sides. So I gave Brock a chance and the dude put his hand out there and made a good play. Then Brock just caught the ball and ran. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is the most like, what are the three, you know, what, what things are sure in life, but death taxes and Brock Bowers catching the ball. Mm-hmm. And then Brock Bowers says, I didn't get as much separation as I wanted, but Stetson just gave it a chance. I saw it bouncing around and I just grabbed it. Mm-hmm. I was kind of laughing, Bowers said. I didn't even <laughs> see the ball until it hit his hands and started batting, and I just caught it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I don't be. know if there's a more like, yeah, I mean, it, it's like, this is, this is what it's actually like to teach gifted students, to keep, teach gifted high school students, because they'll do something, and you'll be like, how did you know how to do that? And they're like, oh, I just kind of did it. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, just tried. what? <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. I love that for you, but man, I hate that for me, having to be around you and, and watch how good you are at this. Yeah. Show your work. That 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 no. sort of attitude. Yeah, that sort of attitude is exactly what it's like to teach an honors class, where they're like, well, you know, I was thinking about the nature of love and longing and how really you can epitomize that. You can symbolize that in your writing by talking about sort of gu- the guttering of a flame. And then you're like, you're 14. Where did this come from? Are you are you actually 800? Like, were you a, were you a, a Chinese monk in your previous life? Like, what is going on? Anyway, that's Brock Bowers. Yeah. So. Way too intuitive for his own well-being. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just like his kinesthetic intelligence off the charts. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about our experiences. I know you've got a couple of notes in here. And before I dive into all of my my stuff, I'd like you to go ahead. There is um, nothing I can... I cannot hold a candle to your actual Jacksonville weekend, but... I will share some things of my weekend, you know, because I watch this this game on TV. I wasn't going to Florida. I don't go to Florida for any good reason, really. Every every few <laughs> years is, is when I travel to Florida, and it's usually for just a pop-in, you know, like a St. Augustine trip. It's a good time. I do but, like the idea. I like the idea that you go, you don't go to Florida for any good reason, but you do go for some bad Malicious reasons. reasons. Yeah, absolutely malignant reasons yeah. is why I go to Florida, and I will yeah. not say them on this podcast because we have an unspoken rule yeah. that we don't say things that could get us fired. Um, yes, I am actually a villain. That is now CBC lore. Anyway. Uh, yes. Yeah. Watch the game at the lake house up at the family lake house. It was really great. Got to watch it on the TV. It's still pretty surreal to have internet there in what was once, uh, a cute little shack and now is, you know, a, a beautiful getaway, which was always a beautiful getaway, but now it is like a beautiful, well-furnished and, uh, dry getaway with internet. And it's, it's lovely. Uh, watched the game there. Um, I will. So this was really good. We didn't start the game at three thirty. We were in Clayton, oh. which, if you haven't been to Clayton in uh, you know recent years, y'all, you're really missing out. Go up to Clayton, Georgia. It's beautiful. It's like perched right on the top of a little mountain, and it's a beautiful little mountain town. And it's it's basically one of the places that a lot of Athenians have kind of escaped to at this point and they've opened you know stores and things and it's one of the best kept secrets i feel in north georgia at this point wander north georgia is up there which is a really well curated uh like outdoorsy kind of kitschy store they've got a really great uh book selection there is an apothecary there now that just opened and everything there is fantastic um there's good food had the best barbecue i think i've ever had um there in clayton this weekend and then did some north georgia wines you know North Georgia wine's great. Um, And then we got back to the lake house and watched what I really enjoyed was the highlights of the first quarter and just caught us all up to where we needed to be. Mm. Great. Fantastic time. The YouTube TV highlights just showed us what we needed to know. And then we were there with everyone else. That's great. Um, That's great. I do need to say, because we were past Halloween at this point, Mm -hmm. 
this is a tangent before we get into the Florida game, but I just need everyone to know mm. that uh, this is what has been consuming my mind over the last few days and living rent-free in it, is are you aware of uh, Heidi Klum's obsession with Halloween and what she's done for the last few years on Halloween? No. <laughs> <laughs> so she holds a big Halloween party every year, and okay. she typically has a absolutely absurd... Uh, costume that she'll do like she did like Fiona from Shrek um, and she did a few other random uh, outfits but this year and I'm obsessed with this she took that meme where the meme is like women colon would you still love me if I was a worm you know male partner colon absolutely because I know you'll never literally ever be a worm um, Heidi Klum took that to heart. She took that personally and she dressed up, no joke, as a giant earthworm. And I'm absolutely obsessed with it. And I need everyone to know that it exists before we start talking about football I again. Wish, I deeply wish that she had not, I had not seen this image. <laughs> I, it I can never unsee. Some of these are actually really good. Mm hmm. There's, 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 she did Elvira, a vampire. She did a witch. <laughs> she, I, she dressed up like an apple with the snake around it. Like she's the forbidden fruit. Yes. Uh, I, it's, they're, they're all like so, so committed. They're bad. Yes. And there's so, so the oh, best I'll part s- is like, there's parts of her on the red carpet of this event and she's just laying on the ground like a worm doing the interviews. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like i thought when i saw this that the best part was that her husband was a fisherman i was like wow that's crazy that's really funny and then i saw all the interviews she did while laying on the ground as a worm and whatever those of you that are listening to this and you have not seen the pictures you are thinking you know what this probably looks like no you're not ready you have no idea don't imagine it as cute you're imagining it as cute and i need you to stop yeah, whatever you think you it is, stop. it's not that. Don't and let, let me give you also some advice. Don't look this up. I'm I'm not trying to goad you into looking it up. I'm actively telling you, do not look this up. She went as a flayed human body one time. Mm-hmm. She's gone as multiple goddesses of other religions, which is a little bit like, er, but mm-hmm. she went as Cleopatra one time. She just went as a really old trashy lady. Okay. All varicose veined up, but there, there's always like body horror. Here's her as Jessica Rabbit. Yes, she did Jessica Rabbit once. One of my favorite things is that Vogue did an article on this and did an interview and kind of talked to her as she was getting all of this together and like getting into her worm costume. And they described it as her Heidi Klum's worm moment. And something about that is just like that. I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. The worm moment. Heidi Klum's worm moment. Here's the... She's put <clears throat> too much money into this. That's the problem. It's mm-hmm. like she has too much. She she has bad ideas that shouldn't exist, <laughs> but then she has the money to execute them. And I suppose in a way, this is probably like... I think that's the American dream though, Nathan. It, it's good. Yeah, but also her bad ideas aren't really hurting anyone other than my psyche. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh We've talked before on this show about something, a concept that I have shared called uh, fuck you money. This is this is uh-huh. that. This is like the pure personification of fuck you money. It doesn't matter yeah. what I do with my money. 
because I'm not helping anyone and I'm also not hurting anyone. <laughs> I just have money to spend yeah. so that I can dress up yeah, as a worm I, for an hour on Halloween, a, a holiday uh-huh, that consequentially does uh-huh. not matter really to anyone. I really wish that she was so close to doing the God Emperor from Dune. Oh, yeah. She really she should. Was. She really just should have done it. it, it she's like 20% of the, well, more than that. She's like 30, 40% of the way there. All right. It's brilliant. I, okay. Let's get into your experience. I got to talk about your football. I don't, literally, I, I don't know how to recover from that. I'm, <laughs> life is over. I have to, I have to partition my brain. I have to like run a separate thread in my mm-hmm. brain that will always be worm related material. Like a disc fragment. Defragmentation. Yeah, I have a I have a new partition and uh-huh. that partition is just worm stuff. Worm moment. I I'm closing the live recording chat so that I don't have to see what Okay. <laughs> <sighs> okay, 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 okay. So Woo! Florida Florida trip. Let's talk about it. Okay. Couple of things. My central premise for the way this game went is that I acted like I was an old man. Now, first of all, I went to two different Bucky's on one leg of the trip. I think I don't need to say anything else. I went to the Bucky's near St. Augustine and I went to the Bucky's in South Georgia. And it was amazing and everything I wanted to. But the old man just didn't stop there. I drank a lot of really nice aged rum, Ooh. which I feel like is a really man drink. It was really good. I got uh, the Appleton Estates eight year. Mm-hmm. It's very, very good. Can I say, we just drank daiquiris all weekend, like real, actual daiquiris. Real, like Hemingway daiquiris? Yeah. Very good. Very good. I've gotten into rum. I've been watching a lot of this. I, I don't I don't drink particularly much these days, but I liked it to be like classy when mm-hmm, I do. Mm-hmm. And so I've been watch, watching a lot of this this YouTube channel called How to Drink, yep. which is a very good YouTube channel. Highly recommended. And he really likes rum, and it's made me like rum more. Anyway, so I went to bed early. Like mm-hmm. all nights. So I think the last the Saturday night I went to bed at like twelve, which is pretty early for a Florida trip. I took four Powerades with me and three liquid IVs, and I just like drank 120 ounces of water a day. I'm pissed like a freaking racehorse, but I was very <laughs> hydrated. I got up every morning and stretched. Okay. I ate like three full meals every day. I didn't eat McDonald's the whole time at all. I am like 85. Yeah. I'm like a 65-year-old man. I went to Denny's at like 7 a.m. when no one was there so I could get an omelet. Yeah, you went to Denny's. That's all you I have know. to say. That's basically the whole Well, there's a, Den- there's a Denny's in the motel where the Redcoats stay. Sure. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm an old man, but that's fine. Uh, let's see. It was really good. It's always really good, but it was really something I appreciated this weekend. We played a kind of opposite of an opposing band you know having an opposing band in the stadium makes everything easier everybody works harder i mean it's just like everything (laughs) goes more smoothly just having that little bit of competitive spirit you know one of the things that brett always says is that like even if you don't like the kid across the cul-de-sac even if you bully the kid across the cul-de-sac when he leaves then there's nobody right Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and so there is there is sort of, I, I, at least for me, I feel very like respectful to the opposing bands. I think Florida's bands is pretty good. They play "You Can Call Me Out" by Paul Simon, and it's very interesting. Like the, it's it's a good arrangement. Uh, but it's also like I want to dump on them, but I still want them to be here. Like I don't want to be mean to them. I just want to be better than them. Yeah. But it so it's always nice to have that there. So we did. I felt, uh, I felt really happy. I, uh, we were we were warming up, and the. I, I felt uh, very proud of the Suzphones having supposing that band there because we were warming up and we were arced up sort of facing towards the Georgia band area. If you think of the 
if you think of the stadium as sort of like a giant clock, Georgia, are you we the Redcoats that we warm up at like eleven o'clock, and Florida outside of the stadium they were uh, warm up at like one or two o'clock. So like the bands always walk past each other and it's very cordial. But the we were warming up. And suddenly Florida's band, they'd already set up their stuff inside. They all come streaming out because they're going to play like a little like kind of gator gig or whatever. And they walk by us and they they face away from us. But they're like 20 feet away. And I was just like, okay, well, we're about to play a bunch of stuff that I know we sound good in. We've already warmed up mm. enough. So I was like, play, hit them with Morris Brown. And there's this outcast song that's in the show. And the Susan sounds sound so good in it. And it was one of these moments where it was like, at first, I don't think they got what was happening. And then they realized what I was doing and then they were suddenly very into it. And I had to like back them down. Like, no, no, we want to sound good, but it was great. We got like all of their Susans to turn around and like applaud. And like, I, I'm very happy that Florida's band was there and I have nothing bad to say about them, but also like, I feel like it is my duty as a, a supporter and staff member of the red coat band to just kind of like dunk on them when I can. Um, it wasn't that they were bad. I just think the season foods sound really good right now. So I was just yeah. like, okay, well, can you play like this? So that was really fun. Uh, let's see. I We put the ore on the Seuss phone truck, the Okafinoki ore. That was pretty great. We had some good you know, uh, you Florida fan interactions and some bad ones. Kind of some, I don't know, just some like kind of a little saltiness from Florida fans that we haven't seen in the last few years. It wasn't anything bad. It wasn't like anybody got assaulted or anything. It was just like. A little bit of a little more trash talk, a little more bad words from opposing frat boys, which, you know, I'm not going to hold Florida's fan base responsible for that because then I would have to hold ours responsible for it. We, oh, okay. So kind of a like off color moment, which I know you don't expect from this podcast, the height of class. So <laughs> one of the things about being a red coat and any former red coat who follows, who listens to this right now or current red coat knows that this is true. One of the most stressful things about doing a red coat game is that usually it's like 11 to 12 hours, right? During which you don't really have access to any amenities. And a lot of times you're in Vivers, right? Well, I wasn't in Vivers, but what I'm trying to talk around is basically like one of the most important things to know about any given place where you're playing as a red coat is where to take a dump. <laughs> and okay. if, if you have to, I, it's just important. It matters. Yeah, it's important you stuff. You think it doesn't matter, but like... You you leave your hotel at like t you know nine forty five and you don't get back until eleven that night or whatever like it's gonna come up so there is this there is this sort of amphitheater area it's very nice it's outside of the Jacksonville the TIA Bank Stadium or whatever and that's where the studio phones unload and we were in there and the very nice staff people we were like hey do you have a bathroom available. And they were like, yeah, yeah, just go back there down the hall. And there's like one bathroom and through each door. And they pointed us back through into the green room area for this amphitheater. Mm -hmm. So like each quote unquote bathroom was like a sitting area with a sink and a little kitchenette <laughs> and a like very, very well appointed sort of makeup station. And then a whole separate bathroom with a shower. And it was the absolute most luxurious number two I've taken in my whole time. Uh, as a red coat going all the way back to 2006 it was just mwah, perfect it really set Love the day that. up well that's when i knew we were gonna have a good day mm -hmm. you know i pro i got those eggs processed didn't have to deal with any <laughs> intestinal distress anyway yeah. so you had to learn that about me <laughs> it was <laughs> it was it matters i'm telling you it's gross it's gross but it does matter 
No, no, it's not because gross at all. It's, like, it's human. Because it's yeah, it's human, but it it absolutely matters because you have this moment where you're like, I'm in a public stadium and I'm about to crap my pants. <laughs> like, what do I do about that? <laughs> and I can't like, I can't play it off as though I was just too drunk because I am you're sober. Not. Yeah, yeah, I'm like explicitly sober. Anyway, so. You know, that's the problem with you. you. You get healthy and they tell you to eat all these leafy greens and then you realize you're eating like three cups of roughage a day and then it's like, it's just a whole nother, anyway. A whole other thing. So, yeah, that was, a that was, it was, it was a good Florida trip. You know, we had the whole third quarter sort of moment and I never felt like in the game, even when they got down to eight, I didn't really feel stressed about it. I was like, I had this feeling when they scored to make it an eight point game, it was like 28 to 20. I was like, I think we're going to just watch the ball right back down the field and score. And we did. I think something that's interesting about this Georgia offense and something that I think will be a very salient talking point, a salient thing to look for going into the Tennessee game is can they do the thing where they kick it into fifth? Because mm-hmm. all year, this Georgia offense, and this is not something I can prove, but something that I believe anecdotally, and I think I could probably prove if I cared to, but I feel like all year this Georgia offense has had this gear where it's like, oh, we need to score? Okay, we're just going to score on like oh, six let's plays. do that. And, and it's never like fully explosive plays, but it's never like a three yards in a cloud of dust thing. It's like 12 yards, 15 yards, 20 yards, 10 yards, 10 yards, one yard touchdown run. Mm-hmm. That seems to be sort of the play script on those drives. And I had a feeling that we were going to see that. And then we did and we won. And, and I think one of the challenges to sort of start to transition us more towards Tennessee. One of the challenges against Tennessee is that Tennessee is going to have the offensive pressure that we're going to need to have that gear basically the whole time. And that is, I think, sort of the central thesis of the U Tennessee game for reasons that I can explain later. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about with the Florida game? Um, I will say, you know, we've, we've mentioned this a few times before this season when we're you know, the, the sort of the layman's view of this team right now, their perspective, and I, I say this having spoken to somebody who I consider sort of a, a layman's, you know, football watcher um, this afternoon saying like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. I don't think Georgia's going to win this coming weekend with Tennessee because, you know, they've just been sort of rough um, here and there. And they're just, you know, crumbling under the pressure of being, you know, reigning national champions, et cetera, et cetera. But what I have to say is despite having like this is this is the kind of team that who can have a shit third quarter and still win the game by 22 points. Like that is the craziest part of all Mm -hmm. this. They can have a turnover ratio of like three to one against this other team and still win the game. That is not something that just any team can do. And I think that that is the most indicative thing for this team to sort of support the theory that this we're, we're sort of in the golden age of Georgia football. Um, Yes, mm-hmm. we are having issues with what's going on. But at the end of the day, only great teams can sort of mess up like this and still come away handily with the win. Whether or not that yeah, will continue think... going in with as many injuries as we do and so many issues um, will is yet to be seen. But it's just, you know, I don't think it's as bad as people will are sort of making it out to mm-hmm. be, you know? I heard on Split Zone Dewey this week, they were talking about can Georgia chase? And I think that's a good question. Can can Georgia go down and be forced to come back? But and, and I don't know that that's a question that we've answered so far this year, but I know the question we've answered is, 
can Georgia counterpunch? Because mm-hmm. so far this year, Georgia has shown that if you get a turnover and score, or if you have a busted coverage and you manage to score, or if you make the game close, Georgia has an offensive gear this year they did not have not had in previous years. And it's not an incredibly explosive one, but it's one that's just like incredibly almost unstoppably efficient, especially with what I would call like medium yardage plays, right? Those yeah. 10 to 15 yard chunk plays that just give you a new set of downs every time. And when Georgia is in that gear, they just are really hard to stop. And I think a lot of that is actually predicated on is the tight end game clicking. And this was a game where even though we saw some drops from Darnell Washington that he usually catches, mm-hmm. this is this is a game where you saw what tight ends can do in a game plan tight ends like the ones Georgia has yeah and that's really true like this is I don't think that you know we 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 look over the stats and we look over the sort of box score the advanced box score of this team and we see week to week that they don't have they're not one of the highest ranked explosive teams and it's not because they can't it's because they won't because they don't need to they play a different game because there I feel like there are two types of teams out there that have a high ranking as far as explosiveness goes there are teams that have to do it because that's what they can do. They have impact players and they have to get these like flashes in the pan to win the game. And there's other teams that do it because they can do it. And mm-hmm. Georgia is sort of ignoring both of those and saying, we have our own game plan. We're doing it a little bit differently. We're just going to efficient you to death. And that's how we'll win mm-hmm. these games. And that is the kind of game that wears down defenses so that explosive plays later in the game work more effectively. It's like efficiency from start to finish. There doesn't need to be explosiveness in the very beginning. I, you know, and you're right. Like, can Georgia chase is the key question I feel like I've seen come up as much as possible, as much as I've seen, you know, any sort of common threads of, of sort of narratives coming out of these articles for the Tennessee game, because that's what Tennessee does. Tennessee gets ahead and then continues and doesn't let their foot Yeah, they the force gas. you to chase. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They absolutely force you to chase. But I think the and, question and is going to think... be, though, will Georgia, does Georgia need to chase? And we can kind of look into stats of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a really good point. So with all that being said, we're already getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, and, and we both are sort of itching to talk about the Tennessee game because – you know, the, here's here's a little bit of a, how the sausage is made behind the scenes, a little bit of BTS with, with your boys, Justin and Nathan. Making a current events show like Chapel Bell Curve, which is laughable to say that we make a current events show. It's just factual. It's It doesn't mean anything other than that. Um, there comes a point in the week where the facts you have about said current event no longer matter. We were at that point, and we're just going to keep referencing the upcoming Tennessee game now. And so I feel like we're at the natural point of the, the episode. We're going to transition into purely talking about the Tennessee game, but we'll still reference pieces of this Florida game that sort of, uh, I guess, support our speculation and the sort of pontificating we're going to mm-hmm. be doing about the Tennessee game. But that's kind of where we're at. Does that sound good? Sounds amazing. Okay. So, so we yeah. are going to do sort of a full-on normal preview episode the way you would normally hear. And like Justin said, we'll we'll start we'll continue to pull stuff in from the Florida game, but we will start as always as we do in our previous episode with a qualitative segment, which will start with a history segment. Would you like me to tell you about the history of the Tennessee Volunteer Ooh. Football Program and about my personal opinions, which is really what the history segment is? It's Nathan's history. So it's Nathan's history. Yeah, I, I know it, this this university has a very specific tie to you yeah. and yours. So yeah. Yes, it does. So in terms of the on the field history, currently this 
this is actually a relatively young rivalry between these two teams. These teams have only actually played 51 times. Currently, Georgia is up 26-23-2. and two. The last time Tennessee won this game was in 2016 in Athens on, I believe, the the Josh Dobbs Hail Mary on the last play of the game. Mm-hmm. And when that team, when UGA lost that game, the current record was 23-2-21. UGA has since ripped off five straight against this uh, Tennessee team to make, you know, to more than even out the game or more than even out the overall record of the rivalry. And I mm-hmm. think these last five straight have been pretty emblematic of where Tennessee has been as a football program in the last uh, 20 years before 2015 and 16, when Tennessee had a two game winning streak against UGA, the UGA had previously also won five straight. Mm-hmm. So of the last 12 meetings, UGA has won 10. And I think that kind of just describes where we are to, you know, in terms of long-term history, Tennessee actually is a more storied program than UGA. They've had sort of a series of legendary coaches from Phil Fulmer to Johnny majors to Butch Jones, LOL, just kidding. (laughs) But they've had, they have their ninth in national championships. They have six national championships, 16 conference championships, both more than Georgia. They have an all time winning percentage of 6.672, 864, 408 and 53 record, which is better than Georgia's as well. They have, you know, their ninth in Wilden's all time at 864. They have three more than Georgia right now. So while Tennessee has been in the wilderness, from basically 2000 when Jim Donnan's last year in, uh, I, I think kind of the turn in the series, if you look at the wins and losses is 2000 when Jim Donnan in his last, his last season with UGA beat Phil Fulmer's Tennessee volunteers, 21 to 10, you know, in the 21st century, UGA has lost to this Tennessee team six times on 22 tries. So, until that turn, this was a, this was a series that, in its sort of very few amount of times played relative to the span of these two, the existence of these two teams, that Tennessee had dominated. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look in the '90s, you know, Tennessee wins eight in a row in the '90s, and they didn't play before 1992 with the formation of the conference divisions. They didn't play every year, but for the first like ten years of this rivalry, Tennessee was dominant. Right, this was in the hi- the highlight, the heyday of the Phil Fulmer era, nineteen ninety nine, I nineteen ninety eight rather, when they won their national title, they beat Tennessee or they beat Georgia twenty two to three, which is a weird score. But really, you know, there's that whole thing about like families in America are always rising and falling, and I think college football teams in America are always rising and falling as well. And the interesting thing about the Georgia Tennessee rivalry is that it is sort of a parallel chart to the rise and fall of Tennessee football, which sort of peaked in the team Martin and Peyton Manning eras and was the most relevant, interesting, one of the most relevant, interesting teams in the nation. I mean, there was a long time when Tennessee's rivalry with Alabama was the game. It was the Alabama LSU of its time for, for various reasons. Right. And actually it was a game that Tennessee had actually dominated for a while before Nick Saban. So, that's all a long way of saying that these teams have played relatively few times oh, yeah. compared to teams like Georgia and Auburn, but that this rivalry has, I think, a not just huge impact on these two st- states, but also is representative of sort of a the symbolic and very real life ebb and flow of two college football programs, right? I think that you, Georgia fans don't necessarily measure their seasons 
about when you know around wins over Tennessee the way that they used to maybe in the 90s or in the you know early 2000s but I think this is a very good this matchup has been a very good barometer for where these two teams are I mean I think the fact that we're even talking about Tennessee having a chance in this game is a testament to how far this program has come since the sort of doldrums of the Pruitt and late Butch Jones era right yeah. so it is to it is to Danny White's credit to and you know the AD at Tennessee that he has been able to make this happen in such a short time span now I think that's about as much as I can cogently say about Tennessee without starting the yelling you think <laughs> they think we've done do you think I was smart enough to have earned what I'm about to do I do. I do. And to give everybody just a little bit of context, you and your spouse did live in Tennessee for a short time. And you had yes. a time that I, I at least posit you're about to describe in some way. And it looks like yes. you've, you've separated these two things by Tennessee, the state, because I think we can both agree that Tennessee, the state, it's a beautiful place. Great place. Mm-hmm. And then you mm-hmm. have some notes here about Tennessee the university of. And so I'm going to yeah. uh, gracefully bow out and kind of get out of your way and let you sort of yeah. wax poetic and, and just kind of, yeah, weave us a tale there, Nathan. So I spent my first two years after grad school teaching in Tennessee because my wife was attending the doctoral school there at UT Knoxville. And it is a time in my life that I have a lot of mixed feelings about because Frankly, Samantha and I were not in a good place in terms of our mental health. And, you know, Samantha ends up leaving that doctoral program for a lot of very good reasons, uh, chief of which among them that she didn't want to do what the program was preparing for, for, but also some other more uh, dumb, scandally reasons on the part of Tennessee's program that she Ooh. was in. Yeah, which I mean, we don't have to get into that. But yeah. those, those years uh, for me personally were marked by both simultaneously meeting some of some very important people in my life and finding a place that I really loved the geography of, and I loved the place and that I have a history with and also like a very dark time for me personally. So please modulate everything I'm about to say through the fact that I am, I am still recovering from uh, (laughs) my time in Tennessee. Uh, But there are things that I do love about Tennessee. I mean, I, I grew up partially in spending my summers in Tennessee. My, my mother's family, uh, her older brother has lived in Tennessee for many years. And I think at one point they when growing up, they actually lived in Tennessee as well. And they lived in, they've lived in Maryville my pretty much a whole life, which is a small town South of Knoxville uh, down 441. So I would go up there for summers all the time and stay with my cousins. And I, I have an older cousin who is like the closest thing that I have to an older brother who has been really important to me. So I have a lot of fond memories from childhood there. I think, you know, there are a lot of things that I love about Tennessee, the state. I love forests. Like, I'm a forest person. The mm-hmm. Smoky Mountain Forest, I think, are some of the most gorgeous old-growth forests I've ever been to. And I love old-growth forests. Uh, they're, they're, there's this color, and there's a word for it I know properly, but I I, I don't, can't remember the, the term. But there's this color that's like the bluish green of like a really green forest where like the shade of the, of the leaves of a deciduous forest is like sort of filtered all the light down to the blue spectrum. And there's this like really deep intense green that you get in the hollows or the hollers of the Smoky <laughs> mountains that I, I just, it is like better than hours of meditation for me being in it. Just the, the coolness of the Smoky mountains is, is Viridian. Yeah. Yeah. I think is, is the name we're being told by one of our live listeners. Uh, but it is just so, soothing to me uh we would always go up to there's a, a smoky mountain 
in the Smoky Mountain National Forest. I think there's a state park campground called Look Rock, which is outside of Knoxville. It's just really this really cute little campground, like not not it's like a pull-in campground. It's not it's not a trail campground, but it is located right next to a like big observation tower that it, you can see like for hundreds of miles. And then it is the the state park is right next to this big mountain reservoir that you know was made by the TVA or whatever and there's a road going next to this this lake that it sort of crosses over the lake and there's a bridge but the bridge happens to go over a part of the lake that is like 40 feet deep so we would always go over to that bridge and like jump off of it and that's <laughs> how we would like take showers is we would get Dr. Bronner's mint soap and like mm-hmm. jump into the water like 20 feet down and then get out and soap up and then jump back in. I have very fond memories about just the Smoky Mountains in general. Uh, one of the things about Tennessee that's great is that the air just smells really good. This is weird, but my wife and I talk about this all the time. Tennessee, like Knoxville, smells good. And okay. I know that you do not expect those words to come out of my mouth. There's no, a lot of things I don't. I don't like about Knoxville. I, there are a lot of things I don't like about Knoxville. Uh, just culturally, it's it's not really my kind of place in some ways, but God almighty, it smells good. And it is so <laughs> gorgeous. It's so pretty. And the, there's so much good music. And, and the food is, I would say, between good and great. There is some sort of, um, I don't want to use the term food desert because that implies a sense of deprivation that we did not experience. But there are there are areas of Tennessee that don't have a lot of like what we would associate as like sort of big city culture, like lots of fast casual dining, lots of bars and stuff. But mm-hmm. the places that do have those kinds of things, especially in Knoxville, are great. Uh, I think that Smokey is the best dog mascot in the nation, not named Ugga or Reveille. Uh, Smokey is a blue okay. tick hound. I love, I was about to say. love, love, love blue tick hounds. I think if I could have any dog, at regardless of the price, it would be a blue tick. I love them so much. They're great runners. I could, I, I could run with them. I could, I don't know. I just, I, I adore them. I, I feel sort of a strange kinship to the blue tick, a, a, a creature that is, so majestic while being just so deeply uncoordinated, but also somehow a successful <laughs> hunting dog. Its physical existence doesn't make sense, and I f- I feel a great deal of resonance with that. Um, so yeah, those are I mean that's I've gotten all the nice things about out of the way. And so okay. now I'm going to say some mean things about the University of Tennessee. Yeah, um, and people this, will pay a good okay. money for this sort of thing you're about to do. Yeah. Okay. So look, the jokes about oh, there's one more thing I like about Tennessee, and that's the Sun Sphere. Uh, there are no gods. There are no masters. There's, there is only Sun Sphere. Uh, the Sun Sphere is a relic of the the time the World's Fair in the 80s was in Knoxville, and it is just this like it 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 is on the one hand beautiful, but also the sort of brutalist golden design of it makes it look like that some sort of supervillain has taken over Knoxville. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Who lives in that thing? Nobody. There's like a a little restaurant or there used to be and like a, like a visitor center. When we were there, it was like closed for a while for like renovations. Cause it kind of fallen apart. Anyway, it doesn't matter. All right. Whoa. Things I hate. So there's this orange thing. Okay. And the, and the orange thing is a real thing. It is, it is absolutely a real thing. So Tennessee right now is a Nike program, but for the longest time, I believe they were Adidas. I want to say, and they could not pick a shade of orange. And this is now, and there are some things about Georgia that do that, right? So like Nike's Georgia red is actually a different Pantone Pantone color color than Nike's official style guide Mm -hmm. red. It's it's closer to their alternate red on their style guide. And it's what's called varsity red. It's what uh, Nike uses for both Ohio state and for Georgia. So in some ways I get, there's always variations color to color and I am like colorblind. So who am I to judge? But Tennessee, (laughs) 
like Jesus Christ, the, the, the gradients of orange, like you can't really capture it on TV properly. But if you see any crowd of TV of Tennessee fans, and this isn't their fault necessarily, it's just so weird. The wide color temperature gradient of the oranges, because they have switched, they had this like massive switch of provider, but also in the time that they had Adidas, Adidas was making like radically different orange tones. And like the whole color orange being Tennessee's color is itself kind of a weird, like backwards ass hillbilly story. Like they couldn't decide what color they wanted to be. And they had like a vote and the vote didn't go well, or it was rigged or something. And, and there was no clear <laughs> winner. And then like, they eventually just picked orange without voting because there were like some flowers that grew on campus that were orange. I swear to God, that's a true story. Uh, I it believe is, it is the most Tennessee shit I've ever seen in my life. And, and like, how do you, how to say this about Tennessee fans? <laughs> Tennessee is the fan base and the Tennessee is the opposing fan base in which I have the most friends. Like I have several very good friends that, are in, that were, I was very close to in my time in Tennessee. There's a, a guy named Nick Walsh. who was a, another teacher at my school who I, I, I adore that man. He's a big Rays fan. Um, and we got along great. And I, I know a lot of people from up there. So I hesitate to cast wide nets because God knows that people in glass houses that live in Buford and Roswell shouldn't cast stones or whatever when it comes to our fan base. But Tennessee, when they're bad, they're fine. Tennessee mm-hmm. fans, when when Tennessee's bad in the Butch Jones era, in the in the in the uh, Jeremy Pruitt era, they were fine, right? But when Tennessee is good, holy shit, man, they're insufferable. Holy shit! Look and and listen. If you know me at all, you know that while I don't live it, I celebrate. And 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 cherish the sort of yeehaw, like drunk on corn whiskey, hip deep inside of a wild hog while firing an <laughs> AR-15 lifestyle into the lifestyle. I, I I I cherish it. I think it is. I think that 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 sort of like damn the torpedoes. I I'm gonna make my own dynamite and go make shine or whatever. That that is that is core to the good parts of the American spirit. I love that shit. But the way that it sometimes manifests itself to the sea fans is that it will hit you with this quip. And it's and it's not really even equipped. They'll just be like, "We're gonna beat that ass this weekend," and then they just stare at you, like <laughs> they just fucking quoted you a Shakespeare sonnet about your personal insecurities. And it's like they want a review of it. They'll be like, "Ah, we're gonna we're gonna beat y'all this weekend," and then they just look at you, and you're like, "Oh, what do you want? What do you want me to say about that, man?" Like, and then and and like, holy shit, are they sensitive? I mean, these these motherfuckers have grievance like built into their DNA, baby. And like, I get it. Like, your biggest supporter is Jimmy Haslam. Like, and it, uh, like, Jimmy Haslam is like the, he owns the, they own the Cleveland Browns. He's like, somehow, 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 the most sort of like back ass corrupt money figure in America. And that's like saying something. Like, that's like winning the Olympic of all Olympians. It's like, that's like an all timer record in America. Like, these, these, these bastards are just so wired to have grievance i mean christ on the cross man it's like it's it's like if alabama fans never got past like the pager era right they're 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 living for a time oh my i'm so angry my cat is coming to comfort me so, <laughs> Nathan, hey, are you okay, all right? <laughs> hey it's all right i'm sorry sweetie all right i'm good don't worry i love you good girl yeah Okay. Anyway, so where was I? And and then okay, listen. In a vacuum, okay? And I'm going to say something else shocking and not negative. 
in a vacuum in its original form, Rocky Top is not horrible. Rocky Top was written mm-hmm. by two Georgians, by the way, about their time living in Pigeon Fucking Forge. L <laughs> the fuck O L on that one. But it is it is to hillbillies what Boomer Sooner is to secretly racist Midwesterners. It's like they just sing Rocky Top and they stare at you. It's like, okay, so like I get, I get that. Obviously, you might say, well, Nathan, you're kind of hypocritical. You're a fan of a team that whose fans bark at children, which first of all, like, fuck you. That's why. And second, <laughs> it, like the way those dudes treat Rocky Top, and it is almost entirely dudes who do this. Like, imagine if instead of barking at opposing fans, imagine that UGA fans stared at opposing fans unblinkingly, unhinged their jaws like giant snakes and just like piped out the 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 instrumentals version of glory like straight into your ears right like they just stare at you and they sing rocky top but they don't even always sing the words sometimes they stare at you and are like and you're just like what do you want me to do are you an alien like are you some kind of bluetooth speaker from hell and then okay here's the other thing here okay i just put like I don't want to look. It, it's not a secret that Tennessee's band has had a lot of 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 scandal and stuff, and and, and that's fine. Like I know a lot of people associated with Tennessee's band. I have some former students in their band. Like I got no, I got no problem with them. This is not a band problem. Okay, this is this is actually like a stadium atmosphere problem. First off, everybody mics their band. It's not a big deal. Even Georgia pumps the band around the stadium. There's there's speakers on the sideline that play parts of the band. That's just how sound works. It's not a big deal. But holy Christ on the fucking cross does Tennessee mic their band. It is like, it is like, like if you stand on the sideline of Tennessee of Neyland Stadium in front of one of those speakers, it is as unto being in a CIA black site like circa 2008 when they like chain you up and spray you with water and play party in the USA over and over again. That is the level of loud it is. It is like this is literally a legal extradition by a unauthorized American espionage agency loud. That is how fucking loud it is. And like, it doesn't even sound good because they, they've over, it, it's like they put too much power into the actual monitors and they just like distort the sound of the band. And like, okay, here's the other thing. Yeah, I get it. Neyland's a big stadium and a lot of people in it and they do the checkerboard thing, but the stadium fucking sucks. Okay. Like on the inside, it's like, oh, it's so big. It looks cool. But on the outside in the concourses, it's like a, it's like a, it's like it's it's like the bathroom hallway of the shittiest off-brand gas station you've been to that you just go to because you have to pee and you don't really want to go there because you feel like you're going to get murdered. But it's got like a bait shop and a casino and also like three old dudes eating grits at like three in the afternoon in it. That is the inside of Tennessee Stadium. And then from the outside, it's like some kind of weird neo-brutalist erector set. Like what the fuck is even going in here? And these fucking unhinged yahoos will just stare at you and like be like ha ha and, and voila as they point at their giant shitty stadium and it's like yeah dude sometimes i shit so much i think my intestines are coming out but you don't see me taking pictures of it and being like this is the biggest one i almost died i mean and like <laughs> yes is it cool that tennessee has a morgan or their stadium great awesome but like let's not like you say let's more? Not act like that's 
Yeah, there's a morgue under Tennessee Stadium. They, they, oh, okay. they, Tennessee has a, uh, an internationally recognized anthropology program, and hmm. they also have what's called the Body Farm. It's not in the state, and the Body Farm is actually outside, uh, where they, they take science, donated cadavers, and sort of put them in various states, wrapped in various areas, and, and track their decay process. It's part of the way that America has such a robust way of, well, not internationally, we have such a robust way of gauging uh, how long ago uh, um, a murder victim, for instance, was was killed, uh, is because of the work of the body farm. But uh, there, the anthropology department's actual like sort of body processing facilities are in part under the stadium, which is itself built up off the banks of the of the river that is sort of wrapping around it. Um, so the whole stadium itself isn't even on the ground. It's actually on like several levels of like sort of sub basement. I've been down in there. It's actually pretty cool. But anyway, the rest <laughs> of the stadium can just like just eat my whole ass. Like, first of all, and it's this is the Tennessee fan base. It, like they point at something that's like normal or not or like just kind of cool. And they're like, look at this. It's the coolest shit in the world. And then they just stare at you. I'm so tired of being stared at by these orange wearing yahoos. It's like a fucking inbred creamsicle factory up there man <sighs> all right i'm done for for a moment i just want to pause it like i i want to imagine a world in which somebody calls their stadium the body farm because that would be cool that's metal as hell yeah for sure yeah i would be into that if anybody wants the mercedes-benz body farm like i'm ready for that Whenever we want to do it. I just want to point out that it is it is a sort of sign of how truly toxic our personal relationship is that I just did that for like 12 unhinged minutes. Mm-hmm. And you were just like, yeah, so anyway, let's talk about the Tennessee game. <laughs> well, that's just how it works. You know, you get six years in. It's kind of like a marriage, you and I. You know, yeah, you, it, you kind of, there are reasons why we're here today. And it's just one of them. It's as you if, know? it was as if like, all of the characters in Othello could see Iago doing the thing where he's like, I think that Othello <laughs> fucked my wife, so I'm going to ruin him. And it's not an aside, and they all can see him, and they're like, huh. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yep. so that Desdemona, let's go. Yeah. It's, it's like, what? It's kind of like what I say, you know, I sometimes have to say, like, you know, Disney World, for instance. Disney World is a place. It's magical, whatever. But if you look hard enough at it, it's kind of fucked up. Like, you look just long mm-hmm. enough, you squint hard enough, you're like, wait a minute. This is just a cap, mm-hmm. like you know, a a, a terrible mm-hmm. fortress to capitalism and all the things that are terrible about the world. But if you suspend disbelief for a moment, it's pretty great. And I think <laughs> that there is there are some parallels there for just a, you know just a little bit, <laughs> just a little little I bit like of a parallel. Think, I think of it as every time I speak into a microphone. Mm-hmm. It's like the moment in Animal uh, House where John Belushi is like, did we give up when the Germans bro- bro- uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, <laughs> Harbor? And then Otter's like, what? And then the other one's like, no, 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 just he's rolling. That yeah, is basically every time I speak. He's got to get it out. Like, if he doesn't get his energy out, he'll, he'll, he won't be able to go to sleep tonight. And then, Mm-mm. you know, Samantha will be cranky at me. And we just got to get him snacks. Make this sure is like he's your got his sugar in the right you know, place. Like yeah. dogs have the zoomies. Nathan needs to bitch about other football programs. I've spent all day mediating and tightly controlling the words that come out of my mouth in a very like self-conscious, uh, very in- intentional way. 
And so sometimes I just need to be like my 19 year old self that almost gets kicked out of the UGA Alabama game in 2007 because <laughs> I say something about John Park and Wilson that I will not repeat today. And I want you to imagine the 12 minutes that I just had and imagine what I could say to another human that I would not repeat right now. You wouldn't believe the things he wouldn't say out loud. Yeah, you won't believe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's talk oh, about God. some football then. I need a so, cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are some important things to know about this football game. You've already kind of touched on them because, you know, we've talked about the football, the the Florida football game. Um, you know, we, we do have Jalen Carter back, which is great. Thank you, Newsies, for that a little bit of news segment. But the people that are still out that are going to make this game interesting in a potentially bad way are folks like Dan Jackson and Nolan Smith. I am mm-hmm. not excited mm-hmm. about those two things. Nolan Smith, because of his leadership mm-hmm. and just his overall ability to play. But Dan Jackson, because Georgia, we'll talk a little bit more about this too, but Georgia is a team that subs really well, and we put together packages on each down really well. Tennessee mm-hmm. is a team that is doing their the hurry-up offense exceptionally well. And so that makes subbing really difficult, and that makes putting out specific packages and picking up what's going on on the other side of the field quickly enough to put out those subs um it makes it really difficult as well and so i'm just kind of curious how that's going to work uh, but other storylines this game basically everyone is saying tennessee's going to win on the flip side of that which i think is interesting is that we're also seeing and we were talking somebody was talking about this on our discord earlier as well and i had been noticing it just in articles and uh sort of uh newscasters on espn and whatnot that george is kind of getting the alabama treatment now and i know this has been happening to an extent for a little while but they're really getting it now for instance uh, somebody on the discord was talking a little bit about how uh some talking heads were talking about stetson bennett and how he is the best quarterback in the nation right now and then everything from that segment was just like clips from the oregon game and it just sort of the Alabama treatment to me is just ignoring all of the other things, all of the glaring issues that have to do with the team or the player in question. And they just sort of gloss over those pieces and just really hone in. They cherry pick all the best pieces of that player, that team, organization, the dynasty, whatever it is. And so those two things are really at odds right now. The fact that people are saying Tennessee's going to win and that George is getting Alabama treatment. But how are you kind of feeling about those two competing storylines right now? I I think they are two different kinds of fallacies, right? So mm-hmm. the Alabama treatment is sort of, I mean, it's not a bandwagon fallacy, but it is sort of like the fallacy of the moment, the fallacy of influence, right? The, the, the sort of appeal to authority fallacy, the idea that because something is capital G good, something is capital A, Alabama, whatever, that it has a certain inherent value outside of its good or bad features i think that is like a a very common and easy to fall into fallacious storyline that many people both in the press and i would say just in like everyday human life fall prey to the the tennessee's going to win thing you know i i think that that is a more defensible argument that i'm sure many people are making in good faith that tennessee's mm-hmm. going to win so i don't want to discount it as incredible as entirely fallacious but i do think that sort of uh this is a good example of the the literal bandwagon fallacy. You know, we use the term bandwagon to talk about fan behavior too much, but it is actually a proper rhetorical fallacy that we, that uh, you know, you can see in argumentation, right? The the idea of like, 
other people like this, so therefore it may be good. It must be good. You know, the the, the fact of the matter is, I, I think it's undeniable at this point that Tennessee plays a very attractive brand of football. I think even opposing teams fans and myself included can can admit that that is true. Uh, Tennessee throws the ball down the field. They have a real damn the torpedoes attitude on, you know, just in general in terms of managing the game. They have some very likable players. Hinden Hooker as a transfer quarterback who's sort of turned into a high spin contender is mm-hmm. not just a storyline that is good, but it is a good story, right? It, it, and so I, I don't blame anyone for taking that that attitude because, you know, there have been many times this season where Tennessee has looked nigh on unbeatable. Now, I think there's some specific both situational but also strategic and sort of uh, compositional reasons for that, that Tennessee has often looked basically unbeatable. And I think mm-hmm. some of that is sort of uh, <laughs> basically the the fallacy of the Alabama game, right? Uh, sort of counting maybe a little too much into that. But I think that the the idea that Tennessee is go- going to win do- does have a def- is a defensible premise on its face, right? But I mm-hmm. think that there is a certain amount of Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State fatigue, which I totally understand. And so seeing a team like Tennessee, I think is very reminiscent of like 2019 LSU, not just in in terms of having a record-breaking, very special season out of nowhere, but also in terms of just being like, what a relief it is to see the Alabama-Georgia game not being the most important game of the year. Like, I, I they were talking about this on Splits and Duo, but they, they were asking the question, like, when was the last time that the most important game in the country didn't involve Alabama or Ohio state. And it's been like since Pete Carroll was at USC, right? So it's been a Mm -hmm. long time. And so I don't begrudge anyone who has no rooting interest in being interested in Tennessee, because like, frankly, if you don't have the years of unprocessed trauma that I do in regards (laughs) to Eastern Tennessee, they are a fun team to watch. I mean, even for me, as I go through the Tennessee withdrawals, even now, I, I have a certain amount of respect for the way they play the game. And I think uh, I think that they have an offense that I think from the NFL standard, we might call Mickey Mouse, like something that would not fly in the offense. But it is a logic or in the NFL, but that does not diminish its value or strategic importance in the college game. So, yeah, I mean, the Alabama treatment is BS, even when it's doing good for us. But I don't think that we should just dismiss the idea that Tennessee could win this game out of hand because I think that there is some evidence for it. Another thing I learned about this game, before we get into our quantitative piece, and this we can be pretty quick about this, but I had no idea that the list of like visiting recruits was just public knowledge. You could just get the whole list of all the kids. like, And I say kids intentionally here. <laughs> it's just a whole list of kids coming to show up yeah, I mean, and, and be at this game. You can and you can't, right? We have a list of the publicly available visitors. There will be some committed visitors who choose not to tell anyone. And generally speaking, I think that most recruiting media respects that uh, just mm-hmm. to avoid complications with committed teams. Uh, but yeah, there there is a pretty good, even the list of things that is available for free on the internet. And, and the list we're about to give you doesn't include some other names that I've seen on paid sites because I don't want to scoop anybody. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is, you can kind of, if you look at UGA's schedule, you can see why this is the recruit game. Uh, yeah. Historically, and this is why Kirby bitches about the Florida game so much, being at a neutral site, you know, the past few years, as Georgia has gotten better, there haven't really been a lot of good home games. Mm-hmm. And so you would, you can understand from the Georgia Trover recruiting staff's perspective why this is a game that you put a lot of eggs in that basket, right? Yeah. Um, do you, is there anyone on here in particular that you want to talk about? 
I think so. Right now, Georgia is, I believe, still number two in for um, seven sports recruiting rankings. And mm-hmm. the big difference between number two and number one right now, number one being Alabama, is that they have five five star recruits, and Georgia has one mm-hmm. five star recruit committed with 17 four stars. Um, the top two people that are coming to this game are Samuel uh, Mapimba from IMG, who's the 29th overall. He's uncommitted, but he's leaning Georgia. And there's a 31st mm-hmm. overall in Justice Haynes, who's a running back. Samuel uh, Mapemba is a defensive line uh, player, and Justice Haynes is a running back, who's 31st overall. He is currently committed to Alabama. Uh, so, you know, there, so that is I, what it I, is. I, but I don't, I it's think just Justice Haynes, we can kind of throw him off of the list. Uh, mm-hmm. Justice Haynes is Veron Haynes' son, like the receiver in the, yeah. uh, the hobnail boot. A play and he apparently goes to this game every year because it's like his dad's game the georgia tennessee game mm-hmm. my understanding about justice haynes is that he is a guy who is a is sometimes you just have legacies that don't want to go where their parents played where mm-hmm. their parents went and i think that we have very little chance of getting justice haynes <laughs> back into the fold but uh-huh. i will say you know he's on campus like it you never hurts to make it take a shot. I think Samuel Mapimba is like he is the edge player the capital e edge player that the nfl always is so salivating over it. He is, I think, like the fifth or sixth, or maybe second or third ranked defensive lineman overall. Um, and I think he's more of a DE than a, a, a D lineman. But he is mm-hmm. he is a very high priority. Another yeah. another there are a couple of others. Anthony Evans is a wide receiver. This is a recruit. This is a recruiting class that doesn't quite have what we want from the wide receiver position. And Anthony Evans, I believe, is committed to Louisville. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one to look at would be DeAndre Moore uh, out of St. John Bosco in California, which is one of the big like California private school, uh, I think private school powerhouses. He is a guy that, if I recall correctly, the his lead recruiter, who I th- think, I'm going to, I don't think it's Brian McClendon, but it might be, I thought it was somebody else. But anyway, his re- lead recruiter went out there to California to watch him play on the bye week. And, you know, anytime we are this late into the process in November before the December signing period, the movement of any coach across country is one that I think is worth looking at. I We're not a recruiting podcast by any, any amount, you know, any stretch of the imagination, but I think there's some interesting names on here. The one that I'm really interested in is uh, Sammy Brown. He's a mm-hmm. defensive end uh, linebacker from... Uh, Jefferson. I'm interested in him because I taught him his freshman year of high school in honors. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say what, what I taught him in, but I taught him in English and his ninth grade English class. So he's a really smart kid. He's a really good writer. But I had always assumed that Brown was going to Clemson because his dad was on, uh, his dad was the football coach at Commerce before he left. And his mm-hmm. dad had gone to Furman, which has really close ties to Clemson. And that family is, and and I love, I love the Browns. Uh, <laughs> His mom is like the pharmacist who gave me all my COVID shots. She's a really sweet lady. And <laughs> that family is like a very Clemson family. Like they just have a lot of connections to South Carolina and to that area. But apparently like Georgia has really kept on him hard. It would be really cool if one of my former students went to Georgia and, you know, was like a legitimate four or five star player. And so I would buy his jersey uh, mm-hmm. just because like he's a good kid and I taught him how to write an essay, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the one I really care about. The we also have a lot of kids from the 2024 recruiting class, which are very exciting. Several of them, yeah. The very top we got KJ Bolden, who is not yet committed but uh, is coming out. He's the number two um, 
national recruit. He is just a pure athlete. Um, and there's also several five-star tight ends who are playing tight ends currently, uh, both five stars. First name, King Joseph. That is his first name. King Joseph Edwards, great name, great mm. football name, five-star tight end. Mm-hmm. And Landon Thomas, five-star uh, from Colquitt County, which I've learned is Colquitt County, not Colquitt County, which I've been saying my mm-hmm. whole life, just so everyone's aware. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I believe we have a few more tight ends in that 2024 class, which is very exciting, uh, but also are uh, you know being ranked and uh, analyzed as just pure athletes. They can do a lot of different things. They're just big dudes who play football really well. <laughs> so... Uh, the list of five stars that are coming from the 2024 class is much larger, obviously, because they don't have to be committed just yet. But several of them are committed to Georgia at this point, um, at least verbally. So very exciting to see so many folks coming. Then there's a whole list of 2025, but we're not going to get into that because it doesn't. It, to me, that doesn't mean anything right now. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the it, it would be Pollyannish to act like that recruiting doesn't matter. I think we kind of just touch on it because we're not experts at it. And I think recruiting is the kind of thing that like, you shouldn't talk too much about it unless you're an expert, but we can't pretend that that recruiting isn't the lifeblood of this team. The reason we're talking about Georgia in the, in this position is inherently because Georgia is a recruiting machine. They are the Georgia way is a sort of like hyper efficient corporatized version of college football now. And like, I'm fine with it. Like if capitalism gives me a national championship, like it owes me some things, you know what I'm saying? So that's, that's (laughs) Mm -hmm. totally okay. Like you can't pay, you can't take away my student loan debt, but you can buy God, give me a national championship. But that is just what the game is right now is recruiting. And, you know, even if you're not a person who gets on the boards or reads rivals or 24 seven or whatever, and follows every recruit with bated breath, which is fine if you are, but even if you're not that, like, I don't think as a, if you want to be an informed college football fan and more, more specifically an informed fan of a team that's run by Kirby smart, you can't really afford to ignore recruiting. Mm Mm-hmm. So before we get into the quantitative stuff, I know we want to get into this because this is already a very long episode, but I do have one more question for you that I'm very excited about. So as someone who worked in the service industry for 10 plus years, and several of those years were here in Athens, I know the Tennessee weekend as the weekend that you can guarantee that Athens will burn down to the ground in some way. In my time in the service industry, however, I never worked when both of these teams were top five teams. It was always just that Tennessee fans were, they traveled well, and they were just kind of awful, whether they won or lost. And that's just how it was. But now, I think that whether they win or lose, they're still going to travel well, obviously, but Athens will still, in some way, burn to the ground. So I wanted to ask Mm -hmm. you, and I have a lot of stories that I can tell that I don't want to tell on air. (laughs) from my time in the service industry with people. Yeah. But uh, we could talk about it some other time. But I want to know from you, what does the Redcoat Band do, if anything, to prepare for the worst case scenario? Like, what are you guys doing extra, I guess, if at all, to prepare for what will most definitely be an absolutely insane weekend? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I think most of the stuff we do is already sort of pre-programmed into how we have slowly molded the game day plan I, there's, we, we do a lot, I think, and I say we, but this is something that's kind of baked into the way that the Redcoats have sort of slowly evolved in the Brett Bauckham and under the Brett Bauckham administration, uh, is to, (laughs) and I'm not speaking for Dr. Bauckham here because like, I don't know that we've ever talked about this directly, but 
so far as I can tell, the the way that the red coat game day flows is is to give the red coats as little as possible of those of the wrong kind of exposure, and I don't mean that in a way that's like antagonistic to fans or anything, but just trying to trying to avoid situations in which the red coats find themselves in a place where they might be compromised or in a place where they're alone or when they're in a place where they have to sort of fight the crush of fans. And I think for the most part, and like, yeah, it's going to be rough and there's gonna be all sorts of moving around, but we do, I think a pretty good job of keeping them together in the times when it's very crowded, which is like inherently what you want to do because when you have 10 red coats in one place and they're trying to make it through the crowd, that can be, if not dangerous, at least very inconvenient or possibly dangerous, but I don't know. But yeah, if you have 450 of them, they are the crowd, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think the way we've kind of changed some stuff to sort of like we have a room that we go back to after the dog walk and kind of regroup and then walk together into the stadium actually really helps sort of keep everybody together in the same place, keep everybody safe. And and also I will say like, you know, I, we are not just instructional staff. Like our, I think, number one job as a staff is that everybody leaves safe, everybody comes home safe. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's a certain amount of this job that just involves like walking around where they are. And I think that in general, Georgia does a really good job. And I, I not even, in, I don't even qualify that. I think that just the University of Georgia does a good job of making the game day atmosphere within the bounds of what is possible safe, right? Like there's, there's a certain amount of risk that you take when you go around 90,000 people of, of whom like 15,000 of them are drunk teenagers, yep. right? But, I would say that my general experience with the stadium staff is that they know what they're doing and are very professional. And like, if there is a non-controversial place that police should be, it is probably at a college football game. Like, I, I, I don't mean that as a political statement at all. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> when you go to a college football game, you see a lot of police. And frankly, for me personally, I'm like, cool. Like, because I, 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 I never have felt like I was on an island, no matter how crazy things have gotten. I would mm-hmm. say that generally the Redcoats have a pretty good relationship with, with the student section, I, I, a relationship which I think has actually improved in the last bit, last little bit. And, and I think that we have, we've done a good job of like kind of nurturing that relationship with like the general crowd in a way that I think has paid dividends for us. And also just like kind of the way we set up the band in the stands, we try to do it in such a way that keeps everybody I mean, I, I, we don't want the Redcoats to be, like, partitioned away from anybody. I'm not trying to say that. It's yeah. just, like, we want them to be in a, in a position where what, what I think Dr. Bauckham every year says, like, if I ask you to do something that makes you feel unsafe, just A, tell me, and B, don't do it, right? Yep. And so I think we work really hard in every game to just keep every member of the Redcoats and all the staff in positions where they don't have to feel unsafe. And so mm-hmm. a lot of that honestly is just like pathing and timing. Like, you know, we get there early before the crowd gets there and we get into our room and we have a private room where we stay, you know, near the stadium and hang out. And that kind of keeps everybody where they should be. And we can see family and friends or whatever. And then we go down to the dog walk as a group. We march out of the dog walk as a group. We, you know, go back down into the stadium as a group. You know, we don't really even break, the band and let them go home until so far after the game that most of the, a lot of the crowd has cleared. Right. And mm-hmm. obviously we'll still fight traffic, but then they don't have to worry about being in a position where they're trying to fight through a huge crowd leaving or whatever as well. And so I think I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that like we don't have things that we should work on or that we're not going to have a conversation. I'm sure we'll have a conversation about it at practice at some point this week about yeah. like, Hey, keep your head on a swivel. It's going to be kind of crazy, but I think we do a pretty good job. 
Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm open to criticism about it because it's something that I think, uh, something I th- that I take really seriously. So I try to be, yeah. and I think every, all of us try to be like kind of hypersensitive about it. Like if we can't, we had, we had an issue early this year and the issue doesn't matter. It's, this is not the point, but it really brought into relief the idea that like, if, if the choice is between the Redcoats sound bad and look bad and the Redcoats are safe, we're going to get them safe. Right. Yeah. And if we can't do anything else, everybody's going to be safe in and out safe. And so I, I'm not saying that anyone can be perfect, but I think we've got a pretty good plan in place that, you know, lets us do our job well and entertain everybody here. I think it's good. That's a good place to sort of, uh, I, I like the insight you're able to provide for that sort of thing. Like, I think that's something that people take for granted when they consider all the work that goes into game days Mm -hmm. and you're right like this is definitely something that safety is a a big concern like being a red coat being a cheerleader being a football player being somebody that's wearing colors to these games yeah you're putting a target on your back in a lot of ways and it's important to have people around you that keep you safe i think yeah and i and i think i don't want uh, we can move on and let's talk about the stuff but the last point i'll make is this i don't have a particular feeling that like Tennessee fans are worse or more dangerous than any other given fan. When sure. I say we're always trying to keep the kids safe, what I mean is like, like I always think about it like, re- like if you're in the red coats, you're in a class, right? And so mm-hmm. you just have a certain expectation of like, I, this is my class. Like I do this for college credit. This is my home, right? Like when we were in Sanford, that is our home. When we were at our practice field, that is our home. And so we don't just mean safety in the very scary sense of the word of someone getting hurt, right? Or someone being sick. We also just mean safety in a sense of like, I don't want someone who I ask to come to a game with 90,000 people to feel like they are lost physically yes, or to absolutely. feel like they are surrounded by people that they don't know. Even if physically they are perfectly safe, right? I mean, there's a reason that I walk up with the, with the, with the, uh, battle hymnal soloist every time. Mm-hmm. It's not because I think anything's going to happen or it's not because they couldn't do it themselves. It's just that like someone is going to be there with you when you wear a red coat. Yeah. Like the whole, like you never walk alone thing. That is something we take seriously. Right. And mm-hmm. it's, and it's not like just a, a song or whatever. It's like a real thing that like, if you are in red coats and you are doing red coat stuff, you will not be in a position where you don't know where to go or you're like lost. If you're lost, it's going to be with 450 other people. And we mm-hmm. can usually You're figure all that lost. Out. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's yeah. Uh, let's do some quantitative reviewing. Yeah. So you've got some stuff here about who is Tennessee, and it's a lot of really great stuff to kind of kick us off in this section that comes from our friend Ross Rutledge. Do you want to work through this a little bit? Yeah. So I can give you all of the stats, and and I and we're going to go in the stats. I'm not I'm not going to pretend like we're not, but I don't really think we need to break down who Tennessee is in a in a sort of granular way because people have seen who they are they run a a they are the fifth fastest team between snaps in real time they run i think the fourth or fifth most plays in the nation per mm-hmm. per game they they are lightning fast they have this sort of characterization that one of the core concepts in their offense which was previously the ucf office under hypel was hypel himself is from the bryles tree um they will run what are called wide splits where they basically will put their their both their wide receivers will be like in the second row of the stands like the, their wide yeah. receivers will be like literally feet off of the sidelines on each side mm-hmm. and part of the reason they do this is one because their offense is really focused on taking vertical shots down the sideline and because it gets people out of the box and allows them to run more effectively against light fronts 
Uh, this is a team that can run. Maybe the strength of the team is their offensive line. Tennessee's offensive line is legitimate. Like Donnell Wright is a senior. He's a five-star prospect. He's going to play in the NFL. He's a real player. Cooper Mays is Cade. Cade Mays is younger brother. He's their center. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have, I think, of their five starters are all juniors and seniors. Right. Like they their offensive line is a legitimate strength of the team. And because of that, they have been able to really run the ball. And one of the sort of like I don't want to see worst kept secrets, but something about Tennessee that you would not think is true, but is true, is that Tennessee runs the ball on average more than Georgia does. Tennessee has run the ball 330 times this year, and Georgia has only read it 279. In terms of run plays per game, Georgia runs 35 runs a game for 52nd in the nation. Tennessee runs the ball 42 times a game, tied for 16th in the nation. They run the hell out of the ball. And part of the reason they do that is that when they pass the ball, they are incredibly effective. They are explosive. They are finished. They are are efficient. They're third in success rate, fourth in EPA per game, third in EPA per play, fourth in total EPA. But they only pass the ball 33 33 times a game, which is good for 73rd in the nation, tied for 73rd in the nation. So this is a team that is just good offensively. They are, depending who you ask, between the first and fourth best offense in the nation. I think our numbers on CBRC Sam have them as the second best offense in the nation in terms of points above average team. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, there is still a gap from our numbers between Tennessee and Ohio state, a team that I think is very quietly the best team in the nation. Insofar as you can be, they Ohio state, I I would not want to play them. I would actually Mm -hmm. rather play Tennessee than Ohio state right now. Um, And Tennessee is about as hot as they come. You know, when we talk about this matchup, If you look at the game on paper team uh, previews where they just kind of compare ranks on some big picture stats, it is interesting because like the top level, the offensive level green across the board, like these Mm -hmm. teams are just good on offense, right? When UJ runs the ball, they are seventh in total EPA, 10th in EPA per play. Tennessee is 13th in total EPA, 21st in EPA per play. Tennessee is fourth in total EPA passing, third in EPA per play. In, in when they pass, but Georgia is eighth and twelfth in those respective metrics. We, if you look at the the national ranks of these teams in terms of offensively, they're pretty much all in the in the single digits, basically. The place where you see the biggest difference, and I think in the difference in the game, and and this is, I guess. I think kind of a sideways way of looking at this from how a lot of people talk about it. But I think the difference in this game is not in how much better Tennessee's offense is than Georgia's. I think that from a statistical standpoint, Tennessee's offense is better than Georgia's by a significant but marginal amount. Right. Well, that's a contradiction. Significant but small (laughs) amount. Okay. What? But that doesn't really matter because offenses don't play each other. What matters is the difference in differences. It is like the second level thing. It isn't speed that matters, it's acceleration. What I mean by that is it doesn't matter how much better Georgia's defense or offense is than Tennessee's. It matters how much better Georgia's offense is better than Tennessee's defense and how much better Tennessee's offense is than Georgia's defense. And I think statistically, Tennessee's offense is going to score points. Not just statistically, Mm -hmm. but I think just like you watch them play. They score points. They hit big plays. I expect they'll score 20 or 30 points. Okay? Yeah. So I'm not saying that, that, that Georgia is going to hold them to a shutout. But but if the percentage difference between Georgia's defense and off and Tennessee's offense is like 1% or 2%, it's the difference in differences that matters. Because 
Georgia's defense is significantly better than Tennessee's offense, right? Yes. Uh, sorry, strike that reverse. Georgia's offense is significantly better than Tennessee's defense, right? So yes. per our numbers, Georgia has like the third best-ish offense in the nation, somewhere in there, right? They have the, per our numbers again, the number one defense in the nation. Tennessee has about the second best offense in the nation, but the 21st defense, right? It's not that Tennessee's offense won't score. It's that Tennessee's defense has some weaknesses that are exploitable. Tennessee's defense is actually very good against the run. They have a good front seven. They have some senior players. They have a lot of talent in their front seven. However, against the pass, they have been bad. And you can tell that other teams know that they're bad because teams on average run 46 pass plays against them per game, which is good for 131st in the nation. How many times a team will throw against you is not just depending on, it doesn't just depend on what their nature as a team is, right? If you're playing a team other than a service academy, they can pass or run, right? If a team wants to throw the ball on you 50 times, it means they think they can successfully throw the ball on you. And Tennessee's opponents, even the opponents that they beat the crap out of, even their FCS opponents, have thrown the ball successfully on them. They are 105th in total EPA surrendered. They are 99th in EPA per play. They're 104th in EPA per game. They're 98th in success rate through the air defensively. So this is a game that is going to come down to what is the difference in matchups, I think, mm -hmm. right? It is going, stops are going to be hard to come by, I think, in this game. But if you give me Tennessee's defense versus Georgia's defense, I'm going to take Georgia's every time. Now, that is sort of, I think, the surface level, like, that is the, uh, let's intro to college calculus level yeah. analysis, statistical analysis. That's the freshman now, seminar. Yeah. Now I'm going to give you, like, the senior seminar from our, our friend Ross Relich. And this is mm -hmm. copied word for word from one of Ross's Discord messages, which you could get live if you went to patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve and joined our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You get these kind of statistical insights all the time, as well as a bunch of other absolutely buck wild stuff. Think about the 15 minutes I had earlier and imagine what I would say when I didn't have to worry about losing my job. Anyway, so this <laughs> Damn, is a, this a, is a direct quote. Yeah. This is a direct quote from Ross Rutledge, who is the proprietor of... All of the statistical things that we run over here, he runs the r2sportsmetrics.com. He has several very good college football models. His I, I, This is not the kind of thing that I do, but if you are into fantasy football, and in particular, if you're into like, I, I think like daily fantasy football, he, his stuff is out there for free and you should be looking at it if that is the kind of thing you do. It is not the kind of stuff that is going to be free for long because his fantasy mm -hmm. football stuff is top, top, top notch. Anyway, but anyway, this is directly from one of Ross's messages. He was talking about sort of like, why does CBCR2 SAM, which is our, what we consider to be our best model, why does our best model predict an 11 and a half point UJ win? Basically almost 12 points, it's like 11.7. He says, as I've said in the past, there are three stats that rule them all per CBCR2. EPA, points per opportunity, and the echo rate or opportunity rate. Now, let me explain those three. Okay. Mm -hmm. EPA, we talked about a lot. It's a uh, estimated points added. It is basically just like a catch all stat for how well a team is performing or on both offense or defense. Okay. Points per opportunity. When you possess the ball inside of your opponent's 40, how many points do you score per drive on average? Right. Anything lower than three is bad. Anything higher than four or five is very, very good because it means you are scoring more touchdowns than you were, than you were scoring field goals. Right. Your echo rate or your opportunity rate is how often 
often, percentage-wise, do you possess the ball inside of your opponent's 40 on any given drive? Or how often do you score a long touchdown? Okay, very simple. Those are the three stats that our neural network model thinks are the most important when it comes to winning games of football. Okay, so on offense in EPA, I'm oh, sorry, on offense in Echo Rate or Opportunity Rate, Georgia is fifth, landing in the red zone 65.93% of the time, and Tennessee is 11th at 63.73. Okay, so both very good. These are offenses that move the ball down the field. They are off- these are offenses that give themselves opportunities to score. Okay. On defense, Georgia is fourth at 29.03% of the time, right? That's very good. Only 30, about Mm -hmm. 30% of the time do teams possess the ball inside of Georgia's 40. And Tennessee is 80th at 49.48% of the time. On basically half of opponents' offensive drives, Tennessee's defense has allowed an offense to get within side of the 40. That is significant because historically, over thousands and thousands of college football games, The difference in average points scored in being at your opponent's 45 and their 40 is massive. When you are inside of your opponent's 40, that is when you start having a chance to kick a field goal, which matters, right? For analytics types, which I begrudgingly will call myself because I just (laughs) have been around smarter people than me for a long time. For analytics types, the 40 in in is the red zone because the 40 is where it starts to be statistically significant that you can score some points. Okay. So, about half the time, Tennessee is Tennessee's defense is giving opponents opportunities to score, right? So if the total EPA for offensively and defensively is edge Georgia, points per opportunity is edge Georgia. What matters, and I think the difference in this game is that Georgia's opportunity rate defensively is a massive edge Georgia. And that's why our numbers like has Georgia is about 10 points better than CBC or than Tennessee, mm-hmm. right? The thing to remember, and this is something that Ross kind of schooled me on. That I, I, I wasn't disagreeing about him or anything, um, but it was something that I sort of, it's easy to forget. And what I'm about to say does not in any way affect the fact that Tennessee could win this game. Okay, mm-hmm. so just don't don't get it twisted. But when it comes to levels of the sport, when it comes to p- pure talent, Right. And when it comes to statistical performance, and this part is a quote from Ross, these teams are not tiers or peers. Tennessee is a very good and their CBC R2 rating compares to some prior champions. They're pretty close to where our 2017 was. So they're good, but they aren't a powerhouse like Georgia, Ohio State and Bama are. Yes, Tennessee beat Bama and sometimes powerhouses teams lose. What I mean by that is this. Tennessee is very good. They very well could beat Georgia. But where I think the fallacious reasoning, when we were talking about re- earlier, when people say that Tennessee is going to win this game, I think the fallacious reasoning here is like a, it's like we're ve- we're very focused on recent results when it comes to Tennessee. The bones of these two programs, if you could choose one or the other, you would choose Georgia. And that matters because in a college football game, right, when it comes down to some bounces, when it comes down to a game, to a game where the where the team that blinks first loses, generally speaking, the college football team that has better bones, and what I mean by that is support staff, you know, experience of players, uh, statistical performance, uh, total talent composite, the team that has better bones usually wins, right? Right now, per 24-7 sports composite rating, Georgia is the second most talented team in the nation, and Tennessee is 19th. Now, the first most talented team in the nation is Alabama. And Tennessee beat them. So it doesn't mean that Tennessee can't win this game. But I would point out 
that what it took to beat the first most talented team in the nation from Tennessee's part was a literal record number of penalties from Alabama's side, right? 17 penalties in a game, 16 penalties in a game or something. Something that had never been done in the history of the Alabama program before, right? It took an insane atmosphere. I just took a big dump on Neyland Stadium because I'm a hurtful, mean person who has some unprocessed trauma. But let's not get it twisted. Tennessee or Neyland Stadium at night is a horrible place to play. It is a nightmare to play for opposing teams. It is a real advantage, right? If you are going to come at the king, you need things to go right for you, right? You need bounces, which Tennessee didn't get all the bounces, but they got enough of them. You need things to go in your favor, and you need to have a very good atmosphere and an equalizer. And so far this year, Tennessee's equalizer has been that Hendon Hooker has stayed upright and hasn't been pressured, right? And when he has been pressured, there have been fewer people in the in the pass pattern than he's been able to hit them. Historically, Hendon Hooker, not that accurate across the middle of the field. Sometimes not that mm-hmm. accurate downfield. But it hasn't mattered because he has excellent wide receivers, among them Brew McCoy. And Brew McCoy is like a five-star transfer. He's not even their best wide receiver this year, right? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, the the... The guy who's getting the most uh, attention this year is uh, Jalen Hyatt. Was yeah, yeah, Jalen Hyatt who got who had five touchdowns. He has forty five catches against Alabama. Uh, yeah, five oh! touchdowns against Alabama. One point one three EPA per play, which is insane. Forty five catches on a seventy nine percent catch rate. Five hundred ninety five yards and fourteen touchdowns so far this year. Jalen Hyatt. His fourteen touchdowns come high... across like five games as well. Like <laughs> it's absolutely yeah, insane. It's insane. He's and so that's what I'm saying. I am not saying, please do not come and and sound clip me if we lose and act like I'm saying Georgia can't lose this game. Tennessee is very good. They have the makings of a team that knocks off Giants, right? They have an explosive offense. They have a dynamic quarterback. They have a good offensive line that has kept that quarterback up and hidden his deficiencies, right? That is important, right? Georgia played this Tennessee game with Hendon Hooker at the helm before, right? And the results for Hendon Hooker were not what he would have liked. In 2021, Georgia beat this team 41-17 with Hendon Hooker at the helm, right? On that day, he had 24 for 37 for 244 yards, one touchdown, and one interception. So I it it's it's not that they can't beat us, but let's not mm-hmm. pretend that this is something it isn't. Tennessee is having a very, very special season. They are a very scary team. If I could choose not to play them, I might. Actually, no, I wouldn't because, man, the thrill of beating them is going to be, if we do it, it's just, I'm going to just be insensate if we beat these assholes and I get to have like a whole a whole hour to talk shit. But anyway, I'm not saying we can't beat them, but I don't think it's fait accompli. Do you have anything else you want to add? If we want to provide a little bit of precedence or at least a little bit of uh, sort of reference for folks, like we're, we're throwing a lot of stats out there and we're kind of talking about this and that and what this Tennessee team looks like based on stats. But if you want to kind of provide a little bit of reference for a game that just happened, Tennessee looks very similar to Florida against the pass. They are above 100 uh, as far as their ranking goes defensively across the board when it comes to facing uh, a team against the pass. And that's exactly where Florida was. I'm not saying that this team is in the same situation as Florida because they have a different coaching staff. They have a different talent pool. However, stats say that this team looks like Florida. And so there it is. Also, they do rush really well, like you just said. However, statistically speaking, Florida rushes better still. 
by a significant margin. Uh, Their rankings and their stats across the board says Florida is within the top five best rushing teams in the nation, which is nuts. And I think really supports your point when you said, uh, well, not you said, you quoted Ross in saying that these teams are not peers. Georgia and Florida did not look like peers last weekend. Georgia looked like they were sort of putting Florida in the same situation, the same corner as they have Georgia Tech in some ways. And I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen this weekend because I do think Tennessee is a is a program that's on the up and up in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. However, stats say that this Tennessee team looks like Florida did in those ways. In the ways that Tennessee is not good yet, Florida is just as bad. Yeah. And so keep that in and mind. And like you said... Yeah, it's not that Tennessee can't beat Georgia. It's just that, like, if Tennessee is the 19th ranked team in the overall 24-7 talent composite, Florida is 12th. Yeah. Now, there are reasons that Tennessee is having a better season than Florida. A lot of them have to do with very special players playing above their star ranking. That's fine. But the thing to remember is, and I think you have a note to talk about the way Tennessee keeps people from rotating on offense, on defense, mm-hmm. rather, and that's important. The thing to remember is Georgia has elite, 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 elite death, depth, depth, yep. Jesus, depth, death. Ooh. Georgia w- <laughs> can and will run players at you all game at yeah. every position other than quarterback. And they could at quarterback if they wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. They will rotate in guys until you lose track of who's on the field. That's what they do, Right. Tennessee is amazing in the front, I don't know, 30 players, but they do not have elite depth. That hasn't mattered so far because they haven't needed it. But if they need it, that is an advantage for Georgia. That's a really good point, though, is that when Tennessee is on offense, and this is going to allow us to segue into what we'd like to see, when Tennessee is on offense, that hurry-up offense almost prevents and negates the ability for a team with Georgia's depth to rotate their players in successfully without drawing penalties and creating confusion among their team. And so if they don't prep properly enough this week, if they have not done enough prep in practice this week to sort of prepare for that hurry up offense, we're going to see things like we are going to see penalties. We might see illegal substitution penalties. We might also see we just have guys staying a lot longer than they're used to and have been all season. And so that's something we have to think about going into this game is that we might see the same guys. And that might be something that's going to happen anyway, because in the secondary specifically, our depth is a lot uh, more shallow because of the injuries to this team. And we're going to have to keep players with more seniority, more experience in positions longer because they have the ability to rotate between those packages and sit in downs and downs and downs um, over the course of a defensive drive. And so it's going to be, I think it's going to be a weird game in some ways. Um, It could go one of two ways. It could go that guys get really tired by the third quarter, third and fourth quarter. And it just, you know, we get out raced, outpaced, or it could be like they really click because you have guys that have been playing in these positions for so long that they just sink into it and they just do really well because they're used to playing that position. I'm not sure what we're going to see yet, but it could go either way, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the, the core of this matchup is that, you know, if you just looked at stats, if you just looked at the the the, pri- the priors, you would have Georgia winning easy. But that's mm-hmm. not how football teams and football games work, right? Yeah. And that that is that that is the difficult part. So, what do you want to see? Yeah, let, let's look at it. So, there is a very specific statistic that I I, I want to draw some attention to. 
in things I want to see, because I think this is going to be kind of indicative of how this game will be played on both sides of the ball when when they're looking at offensively, is that Georgia is the, one of the most successful and efficient teams when it comes to moving the ball down the field. That doesn't mean that they're going to make big plays and gain yards in that way. That means they're going to get as much as they need when they need it consistently. So their Georgia's success rate right now is 21.7% versus Tennessee's 9.2%. And that is, I believe, Georgia's number three ranked and Tennessee is number 12th ranked. And so it's not a huge margin of ranks. However, that percentage is a vast margin for success rate. And I think that the reason why I want to share this with you is because this is sort of indicative of what this is going to look like, I feel, is that Georgia is going to, you know, uh, a CBC callback, they're going to dink and dunk their way down the field. And mm-hmm, Tennessee is mm-hmm. going to get what they can because they have mm-hmm. guys that can beat man on uh, in, in certain plays. And so I think that that sort of, it's bringing that up supports your your thought and the sort of acknowledgement that Tennessee is going to get theirs, but Georgia's going to stay on the field longer because I think that our key to success is keeping their offense off the field and managing the clock on our terms. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you yeah, like to and, say? And it's not that Georgia is a particularly slow team in terms of uh, plays per game, but mm-hmm. I think that this is a team that is very comfortable game plan wise, like you were saying with just, not even dinking and dunking. There's got to be something with, but there. I don't know what the it's word is. It's like a strong dink and dunk. And yeah, but it's like the dink and dunk is like throw it three yards to the air and then run it down the field. And then yeah, yeah. Know, bombing it, like damn the tornado torpedoes, like what Tennessee does is 50 yards down the field. Georgia is going to throw like 10 to 15 yards down the field efficiently the whole night. Yeah. Right? This, I guess it's sort so, of like a, like a strong crick, you know, that wears its way into the banks of. <laughs> The, the the sort of Georgia riverbanks until it becomes a river is sort of the idea, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Erosion at its best. So what do I want to see? Um, look, you gotta you gotta be able to stop the run with a light box, right? If we have five guys in the box, we have to be able to stop the run because w- the way Tennessee absolutely sticks the knife in, the way they put the foot on the throat is actually not through the air. When the game is down on the line, like when they're in the short red zone, when they're in 10 yards and in or 20 yards and in or when they're in goal to go, their MO is they run up to the line when you have light personnel on the field and they make you stop the run with five dudes in the box. Ultimately, I think one of the places that Nolan Smith is going to be missed the most is actually not in the pass rush, even though he was one of the most elite players in the nation in terms of percentage of quarterback hurries created right the the where we're gonna miss him is in his ability to set the edge right and chas chambliss he's he's a trojan till the day dies and god knows i always support a carrollton boy but there were times where he didn't look great when uh, uh, against florida coming in in reserve action so whoever replaces him Mikhail Sherman is one. Um, Jalen Walker is one who might come in. You know, dudes with really good pedigrees. Marvin Jones Jr. is a guy who could get in that spot. Whoever replaces him has to play big. And and I think a lot of that comes in, you know, setting the edge and making Tennessee be one-dimensional. Because there is this – I just because Tennessee bombs it down the field doesn't mean they can't run. And, in fact, I think the reason they are undefeated is because they can run. Now, you have a note in here about getting pressure on Hinton Hooker, and I agree. But I don't mm-hmm. think you have to sack him. You no, just have to make him uncomfortable. You have to yeah. make him get off rhythm. 
if he has time, which they have a very good offensive line, if he has time, he will rip you to shreds, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we got to put his ass on the grass 10 times to win, but we have to make him comfortable. We have to get him off his spots, right? We got to flush. We got to move him out of the pocket. Nobody nobody is better when they have pressure. Nobody. Nobody gets better that way, right? So Mm -hmm. it bears reasoning that, like, Georgia or Georgia needs to get in his face. Now, yeah. I think a lot of that is going to be because five to 10 times a game, Jalen Carter is capable of picking a center up by his pads, throwing him to the ground and running after the quarterback. We are going to need those right yeah. for this, to, for this to work. What do you want to see? Anything else? Uh, I have a note in here about containing Jalen Hyatt, but the thing is like, I think that what teams may have been doing this year is that they were containing Brew McCoy, like that was sort of their focus. And then that has sort of opened up the opportunity for Jalen Hyatt to succeed the way he has. I think teams that Tennessee has played defensively haven't had the depth or the schematic plans to contain both these guys on the outside the way they have besides Alabama. Alabama is, I think, just an anomaly that sort of just said, you know, fuck it, we're just going to throw and we're going to race this team and didn't end up succeeding in that way. But I think that I am afraid a little bit of of focusing too much on Jalen Hyatt and then Brew McCoy having like a standout day and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so with our secondary being hurt and banged up, it's hard to say what I want to see from our secondary other than I will absolutely say I would love to give Hendon Hucker his second interception. The guy has one interception on the entire year, which is nuts. Um, I would love to intercept him at least once. And I think that's possible with this team. We have the staff, we have the folks. It just depends on how conservatively we play through this game because I know that we want to, we don't want to put too much pressure in the pocket. We want to move Hinden Hooker around, we want him to feel it, but we don't want to put so much up front that we're missing those, you know, those, those, uh, those, those splits on the outside. And so it's going to be a weird game of like, what, I, you know, I'm not a coach by any means, obviously. I don't make plays, uh, I don't call plays, I don't know what we're going to do, but. That's the thing that's making me so nervous is like, what are we choosing to focus on? And can we focus on all of it? You know, you have to make part of it not work. And I know that yeah. sounds stupid, but what I mean is the core to of make Tennessee's offensive, Id- right? The core of Tennessee's offensive identity is to put you in tension. If you put mm-hmm. too many dudes in the pass pattern, they will just run on your ass. And I think the way we fix that is not by putting more dudes in the box. I think what Georgia is going to have to do is challenge its dudes within five yards of the line of scrimmage to do to be as close to perfect as possible in run fits and as close to perfect as possible in setting the edge, right? Because yeah. no matter what Georgia does in the, in the secondary, it's hard to think about Tennessee not getting theirs to some extent. What you have to do is put them in a position where they have to try to get theirs, right? Where mm-hmm. they can't run the ball, where they have to throw, where you put more pressure on Hendon Hooker. Hendon Hooker is having an amazing season. He's a very good player. But I don't know that he has had a moment this year where like nothing has been working in one half of the ball, right? Mm. He is their third leading rusher. He can run the ball. He's not, you know, Anthony Richardson, but he can run. So I think that's why I think stopping the run is going to be so important because that's the way you, ironically, that's the way you disrupt the way this offense works. Yeah. 
the final thing that I'll say is I, I will say I'm afraid of getting in a horse race this team. I think it's kind of what may very well happen, and we'll know probably in the first quarter if that's going to happen or not. But I think that we need to avoid that, and we need to really do a good job of managing the clock. We need to make sure that we are the ones, uh, the time of possession is going to be really indicative of who wins this game, I feel. Um, if we have the ball much more, um, I think that will lead to a better outcome for this game for us. I think that we need to stay even with them throughout the day. However, we don't need to get in a position where we are trying to make explosive plays and just answer them throughout the day. I think that we need to stay even, stuff some runs, make them throw, score with them, and then run out the clock throughout the day and really dominate them with with the one of the last, I guess, rooms. There are two rooms, I think, two departments, if you wanted to break this up as like a business, two departments for Georgia that I think are still super deep and we have to rely on, and it's going to be tight ends and running backs. There are no detrimental injuries to those two departments that I think would keep them from operating at the most optimal level at this point. Mm -hmm. So we have to rely on those two points to keep up. I agree. Well, let's make some predictions. What's this? Yeah. The chin uh, wagon season's over. This is the part that I've over. been avoiding. <laughs> All right. So I'll go ahead and tell you. Uh, Sam, CBCR2 Sam has this predicted as a 12-point Georgia win. I believe we have something like, and I can pull this up precisely, but I believe it's something like Georgia 34 or 36, uh, Tennessee 24, I think is what it is off the top of my head. The Vegas line is UGA minus eight and a half. I will tell you my sort of, this is my, this is my premise here. I'll walk you through what, I, what I'm going to predict here. I think you kind of got to give Tennessee at least, let's just be nice or not nice, but let's just be a worst case scenario and give Tennessee two long touchdowns kind of because they've just done that this year. And until someone it. proves that they can stop them. You got to just assume that that's what's going to happen. So that gives them 14 points. I think it's also fair to say that Tennessee is more than capable of scoring another 14 points just in open field, full full field drives, right? That gives them the 28, right? So on the other hand, my thought is that Georgia can throw the ball two tight ends all day against the secondary. And Georgia has the personnel to force the ball on Tennessee's actually pretty good run defense, right? So I I think that's really the difference is that Georgia's going to be able to move the ball through the air uh, and there just aren't going to, there isn't going to be that much resistance in the Tennessee secondary. And I think if this is a game where Stetson just, is good Stetson, but in the most conservative way possible, where Stetson is just accurate and avoids mistakes. I think this is a game where tennis, where Georgia can easily score 35 to 38 points. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my final prediction is going to be Tennessee 28. And God, I thought all week about predicting a Tennessee win, but damn, damn it. I love these dogs too much. And also I think we can't do probably it. Win. So I'm saying Tennessee 28, UGA 38. UGA covers the Vegas spread, but doesn't cover the Sam prediction. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm more or less in the same boat. I am torn between, I think my first prediction was a Georgia 
it was like a 35 to Tennessee's 25 or something around the, that point. And now I've moved it up to 41-31 Georgia. I still see a world in which it's like a 41-38 Georgia win. I could also see it being like a 48-45 Georgia-Tennessee win. Mm-hmm. It's like it's just one of those things where this Georgia team offensively shows up at weird times. You know, Setson like wakes up and he goes, oh, I can play football really well and I will today. I've decided that today is my day and we're not messing around anymore. And this is a bad Tennessee team when it comes to defending the pass. And so this could be a team that Stetson does show up and sort of dissects them. We'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, my, my final prediction is Georgia 41, Tennessee 31 this time around. Before we get out of here, the very last thing we'll say, you know, is other happenings around the league. I don't think anything else matters this weekend. I think this is probably the biggest game of the season so far and might just be the I, biggest I game of the I season. I don't think there's any, I think there's any probably about it. Yeah, I think it's yeah. the biggest game in the past four or five years. Yeah, uh, uh, and I think it, across the league, this is the biggest game with the, the most consequences you know possible. Uh, if you had to pick another game, it is out of schadenfreude. It is huh. Clemson playing Notre Dame. Uh, it is a yeah. three and a half point spread favoring Clemson. Clemson is 8-0 against an unranked 5-3 in a rebuilding phase, Notre Dame. And God, please just take Clemson out of the playoff conversation. Just let them lose. <laughs> I don't give a shit. Take them out. I don't. Yeah, that's it. If if we're going to have to watch another game, it's that one. And I want it to be because Clemson loses. Mm-hmm. Is there a game that you want to see? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I have like the mental energy for anything outside of UGA Tennessee, if I'm being totally honest. I think Alabama LSU is interesting because it's going to, I guess, like probably decide the West, basically. Sure. I probably want to play Alabama less than I do Tennessee right now. And this is Mm -hmm. not a, a quality of opponent thing. It's just because like Nick Saban just had the pure joy of watching his team be ranked sixth. Do you know? Yeah. Nick Saban has had uncomfortably sexual dreams about Alabama being ranked that low. Are you serious? Yeah. He's been waiting And I'm for not it. even saying that you don't deserve to be ranked sixth. I'm just saying, like, I don't want to be Brian Kelly right now. I mean, I think that he's doing a Mm-mm. pretty decent job, even though I think he's an idiot. But holy <laughs> crap, like, Alabama, with a loss, I believe at home, after being like quote unquote disrespected by the national media, they make up disrespect from the national media when they're running winning their third title in a row. When they're in the mm-hmm. run of like of dominance that hasn't been done and probably never will be done again, right? Actually giving them real grievance? Are you serious? Anyway. So that that, Why that, give that one I, another shot in Freud pick. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come yeah. on, guys, they already got an armory. You don't need to throw another bomb on the pile for them. Like, come on. Mm-mm. All right, Nathan, I think that's we're about here it. for yeah, we're, we've yeah. been here for almost two hours. Do you want to take us out? I would love to. If you've gotten to this point, thank you so much. This has been Chapel Bell Curve. If you like what we've heard here today, rate us, review us, give us your kind words. If you want to yell at us with not-so-kind words, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. If you want to support what we do, you can find us on chap- on patreon.com forward slash chapelbellcurve. We will catch you, catch you this we weekend. We catch you. Yeah, this weekend in the Classic City for the game of the century of the week of the decade or whatever it is. <laughs> and I expect to see if I see any of you after the fourth quarter and you can still speak to me physically, you have not done your job. You're fired. Get there. Get loud. And let me give you a little piece of advice. Stay sober enough to be a real asshole. That's all I'm going to say. Be a real asshole. Until then, go dogs. Go dogs. <laughs>